Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our forum today. One of these years, they, I might actually get a room that is all set up for this kind of equipment and so on, so I apologize for the delay. Uh, the forum that you are here for and that we are going to be giving is about grieving the loss of loved ones of different ages. Uh, we've done a number of different things over the years uh, dealing with grieving, and this time we're taking the tactic of different points in a person's lifetime when the grieving takes place. And uh, the panelists uh, are uh, Sister Martha Wenhart from Kitchener. Uh, actually, Marlene Hunter made a statement she could not be here, and uh, uh, Sister Linda Yan has agreed to read what she had written in her absence, so it is actually Marlene's words and not Linda's. Uh, Brother Rick Bojanak from Norton, and then Brother Dan Hertig from Syracuse. First of all, just some brief comments about what grief is. It's the painful disappointment, sorrow, and heartache and anguish that accompanies loss. It's complex, has physical, emotional, intellectual, behavioral, and spiritual uh, components to it. Um, those of you who attended the forum last year on this, we dealt with that in some detail, and I would simply refer you to that if you wanted more information on that. Also note that uh, grief is a process, it's a journey, it's not something simply to get over. Uh, there's typically a starting point, but depending on the kind of grief one is dealing with, there may not be a starting point. It, things just may gradually develop as they do. And an ending point, well, there's often not really an ending point. There's healing and so on that takes place, but grief and parts of it, portions of it, go on. What purpose does grief serve? Grief expresses feelings about our loss. Grief expresses our wish, sometimes even our protest, to undo the loss and to not have it be true. Grief allows us to express our experiences associated with the loss, and that's what we're going to be focusing much on today, the experiences that we went through associated with our loss. What kinds of losses cause grief? Anything a person has strong ties to, and those ties have been severed. Our forum deals with the loss associated with the death of a loved one. Our panelists have experienced such a loss at different points in their lives, and they have lost loved ones of different ages. Each panelist was asked to respond to four questions. The first question, what was the relationship of the loved one for, to you, and for how long did you have that relationship? When did the individual pass away? and what was the general circumstance. Thirdly, briefly describe your initial grief, how it has changed as time has passed. Is your grief different today than it was then? And lastly, what adjustments and changes did you have to make initially, and how does the loss affect or impact your life today? So those are the four questions that the panelists were asked to address. Before going into conclusions, we will obviously hear the panelists. So at this point, I will turn the microphone over to Sister Martha, followed by, um, was it Rick, Linda? Linda, Rick, okay, we're in the right order here, except for me. Okay, good, go ahead, Martha, thank you. 
Uh, I miscarried our first baby at 11 half weeks gestation. The safe period is usually 12 weeks, so we were almost at the point of being safe. And we had been married for about three years and were thrilled to find out that we were finally expecting. And everything was going well until two days before we were to leave for camp. And I remember very clearly, uh, I was alone at work at the time and the bleeding started. And by the time I got to the hospital about two hours later, I had lost the baby. My initial grief was tangled with disbelief because it all happened so fast and I wasn't expecting it. But I remember sitting at my desk and just sobbing and asking God to save the baby, but if it was better for all of us that he would just take it. And it was at the point that I could finally release that, that I did feel God's peace. But there's no doubt that there was a lot of sadness going along with it. Um, I was in shock when I got to the hospital, I, I didn't know how to react, I didn't know how to respond, and the, I was really hurt by the way I was treated at the hospital too. They were so cold about it, nobody acknowledged that there had been a life. And they were, um, they were very cold and, and distant and emotionless, and even after the DNC, the doctor said to me, well, you're no young chick, you better hurry up if you wanna have another one. And it was very difficult. We decided to go to camp anyway because what's the point of sitting at home crying? I could come here and try to get something out of it. So we came to camp, but I saw every pregnant woman. I saw every baby. I saw every child. I couldn't listen to the kids' programs. It was very, very painful because it was so fresh. Um, people tried to give us kind words. You know, well, at least you never held it. At least it wasn't a three-year-old that you already knew, or at least it wasn't a teenager. But it was my baby. And may, some people even said, well, maybe you'll have another one someday. And I didn't know that. Nobody knows what God has planned for us. So it was very difficult at that fresh stage listening to all of this advice. I think the hardest thing for me to deal with with this whole miscarriage was that there were so many unanswered questions. There's no real closure to it because there was no real acknowledged beginning. We hadn't told very many people. We told our family, but nobody else shared the grief with me. I didn't have visitation hours. There was no funeral, no sympathy cards. Nobody acknowledged that I had lost something. The only comment was, that's enough, now move on. And it was, it was very hard for me to accept that. However, I really do believe that God allowed us to go through this on purpose because in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it talks about how we are comforted and with that comfort that God gives us, we can comfort other people. And since that time, I have been able to comfort other women that are going through the same thing because I can understand and relate. Um, there's just one quick experience. One of my friends that I had told about this, she shared with me that she had lost a baby 17 years earlier and no one ever acknowledged that. And so we sat in her living room and cried about a baby that had been lost 17 years before this. And not all miscarriages are like this first one. I've had others since then, but I've also had kids that are distractions. But this was one, this was our first child and we wanted it so badly and it, um, it consumed my life before we lost it. And because there was no social outlet for my grief, I wrote a letter to my baby because I didn't have 
any other way to express my loss. So this morning, I'm going to do something very difficult, and I'm going to grieve my baby by reading the letter to you. Dear little baby, today is the day that the doctor said you would be born, February 19, 2002. I watched him as he calculated the day on his little cardboard wheel, but I already knew what he would say. I was so excited when I found out that you were actually growing inside of me that I looked at all kinds of information on the internet. I wanted to learn everything I could about you, and I already knew that you would be due on February 19. That date was burned into my heart. That would be the day that I would finally meet you. Today is the day you were to be born. We kept the knowledge of you a secret for almost three months. We wanted to be sure that everything was fine with your development before we told anyone about you. We had heard so many stories of other babies just like you, who for reasons that only God knows weren't able to live very long, and we saw the pain in their parents' eyes. We prayed that you would be healthy and that God would protect your little growing body so that we wouldn't have to know that same pain. We had a little secret going, you, your dad, and me. We counted the days before we could finally tell the rest of the world that you were on your way here. Today is the day that we told your grandparents you would be born. We made little cards for them telling them to look forward to February 19 because you would be here today. They were so excited, but we asked them to wait one more week before they told anyone because we wanted to make sure that you were okay. I really didn't mind what day you would be born as long as you were safe in my arms. February 19. That's the day I was waiting for. Today is the day I marked my calendar with little hearts and smiley faces. I didn't know your name, so I couldn't write that down, but I was going to do it as soon as I knew. We had baby name books, and we looked up name lists on the internet. We talked about what names we liked, if you would be a boy or if you would be a girl. There was no rush to choose a name for you because we still had six months to get ready for the big day. We wanted to make sure that we picked the perfect name for you because you would have it for the rest of your life. Today is the day we were going to have everything in place for your arrival. There would be a little room all of your own. There would be clothes ready to put on your beautiful little body. There would be a rocking chair ready to hold us as we held you. There would be toys given to you as gifts waiting for the day that you would be old enough to play with them. There would be car seats purchased, a crib assembled, tiny bottles of gentle bath supplies just for you. There would be bibs and bottles and blankets ready to wrap around your precious little body to keep you warm. Everything would have been in place waiting for you to come today. Today is the day that now breaks my heart. You are not coming today. You won't be coming tomorrow either or ever. Today, February 19, 2002, is now permanently scarred into my heart. One week after we finally shared the news with your grandparents, and only the day after we told some of your cousins, our dreams of the future with you came to a crumbling end. We changed our plans to leave for camp that day because I knew that something wasn't right. We prayed for all, with all our might that God would protect you, and we asked our family and friends to pray. I finally cried out to God that he would pry my hands off of my hopes and dreams to hold you and see you and be your mommy, and that he would take you from me if he knew that he could take better care of you than I. God heard my prayer because he chose to take you from my body before I could even see you or hold you or be your mommy. And I'm grateful to him for doing what was best for all of us. Today is the day I will remember you. 
I will remember the first hint of your conception. I will remember the days that I was so terribly sick because you were growing inside my body. I will remember the excitement of dreaming about you and sharing the news about you with, uh, with the people we love. I will remember my fears of losing you, and I will remember each horrid detail of that coming to pass. But I will also remember the arms of my father holding me as I cried for you. I will remember the overwhelming peace that he placed in my heart as he took you from my body. I will remember that his ways are higher than ours and that his love is perfect. Today is the day that you are at home, not here with us, but with your father. And I know that today you are safe and are loved by the one who is greater than any father or mother here could ever be. I will always remember today, sometimes with overwhelming sadness and other times with immense peace. I loved you, my child, for the short time that we lived together, and I will always remember you on February 19, because today is the day you were to be born. Thank you for letting me grieve today. I've been asked to read this um, testimony by Marlene Hunter, and it is written in the first person, so bear that in mind as I read it to you. I've been asked to relate some of our experiences with personal and family crisis. I'd like to highlight for you in retrospect what was helpful and not so helpful from friends and our church family. People are often at a loss as to what to do to show caring and love, and fear of doing the wrong thing paralyzes them from doing anything at all. We have believers in our congregations who at any given time are struggling with crisis situations like sudden or prolonged illness, death, unemployment, mental illness, and we all want to be helpful. I hope to encourage you by telling you how very wonderful our people are at this. I would also like to be as candid as I can be about what prompted us to seek professional counseling and share with you what we learned about that process. If you are the one going through a very tough time, I'd like to share with you from our experiences what you can do to help yourself and help others to support you. Mental health issues in our family were precipitated by prolonged stress and anxiety. Our crisis began a little more than 10 years ago when our youngest child, Rebecca, was diagnosed with leukemia. If you are a parent, you can well identify with the sheer terror of the thought of your child being diagnosed with a life-threatening illness does to you. It had always been one of our very worst fears, and it became our reality. She was two years old, and she died at the age of four. Overnight, our world changed, and that of our whole family. She had become acutely ill within a matter of a few days, and we were sent to a children's hospital in another city for diagnosis and treatment. The news only got worse as within a day of admission, she could not even walk as her body flooded with cancer. Further tests revealed that she had a very aggressive form of an adult cancer, not normally seen in children. Her only hope of survival was a bone marrow transplant, if remission could indeed be induced. One of the most aggressive chemotherapy protocols was begun, and a search for a donor began worldwide. There were no matches found within our family or on the worldwide donor list. Reluctantly, it was recommended that we go with the closest sibling match rather than a less than perfect unrelated match. 
That would come from our eldest daughter, who was then nine. Despite preparation for some very possible, dreadful scenarios, the doctors described the transplant as miraculous, far exceeding their expectations. For a brief time, she was quite well, but within months, the leukemia returned with a vengeance, and we had to make the shift from hope of recovery to learning how to say goodbye and release her to God. We also had to prepare our other children, balancing truth with hope. We also had to prepare our Becca for her new home in heaven. During this time, we had to cope with long periods of absence from one another as a family and as a couple. The other children, ages 9, 7, and 5, basically lost a mother's presence for many months as I suddenly had to move to different cities far away to be with Becca. My husband, Bill, had to keep working and manage the day-to-day -day life of the family with the assistance of a daytime caregiver, my family, and many people from church. This was incredibly difficult for him. As a mother, I had to give up control of my house since I really didn't live there. This existence in a prolonged state of crisis and anxiety took its toll emotionally on all of us. We needed insight into what was happening and guidance for what was to come to keep us all healthy mentally and spiritually. I only hung on to my faith by a literal thread. I was like a little kid who lashes out at their parent, then runs to them for comfort. I discovered how very weak and vulnerable I was spiritually. Yet I felt very isolated from God and was completely bewildered by this. I had no sweeping assurances, no sense of God's peace, nothing, and I wanted this desperately. This was very much a spiritual journey, and it took a long time before I quit asking God for answers. The why me questions gradually changed to why not me. I am not entitled to some kind of exemption from suffering. A certain sense of comfort and peace came to me with that acceptance. I had to accept that no answer would be given and realize that there really was no answer that would ever be good enough for me. I simply had to trust God and believe that he is good. Added to all this anguish, I had begun to have symptoms of emotional distress during her illness and after her death. One of the children plunged into a clinical depression before her death, and it remained a continuing problem. This was very frightening to see in a child. The pressure of, having, of saving her sister's life and feelings of abandonment were overwhelming, and you can imagine the conflicts that emerged after death. As a nurse, I recognized symptoms in myself and knew I simply could not ignore these, for too many people were dependent upon me to have it together, to be stable. I began to feel like I was on the edge of something. I couldn't identify what the something was, but I knew if I went there, I wasn't coming back anytime soon. I began to have trouble even making the smallest decisions, and this is very difficult to explain. It's like your brain can't organize your thoughts together cohesively. This was very scary. I was functioning normally, but it was a monumental effort. After she died, I struggled with horrible imagery of her death and hideous nightmares. I felt like I was in a glass looking at the world and had a strange sense of unreality. 
my mind simply could not shut down, and in fact, sleep was what I dreaded the most. All of this was getting way too big for us, and we began to explore the idea of professional counseling. We needed insight to what was happening and what we could do to get through this. We had no experience whatsoever with the counseling world and were quite reluctant to go this route, but the Lord guided our choices, and to this day, we are very glad we did this. There are many barriers to seeking professional help, like fear of someone messing with your head, people thinking you're unbalanced or inadequate. Some feel that it is an admission of spiritual failure or a betrayal of a personal faith in the power and sufficiency of God. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Counseling is meant to be supportive, to grant insight and knowledge, and to provide the tools that are lacking in your own coping strategies. I think it is wise to let your ministering brothers in on this decision. They will support you in prayer, protect your confidentiality, and strengthen you in faith by the word. This can help you discern truth from falsehood, and chances are good that if you're in this position, you'll need that added perspective. If you are considering counseling and are in emotional distress, the place to start is with your health care provider. They are qualified to assess your symptoms and make referrals and provide uh, medications as needed. They know what is normal and what is not. Taking an antidepressant is one of the best things I could have done. It restored my ability to think clearly, helped me to sleep, and gave me the possible, best possible hedge against a further deterioration. It is not a crutch. It is not a happy pill. It does not take you to a happy place. It simply restored my brain chemistry that had been altered under severe stress. What kind of things were helpful to us? People we came to know were totally amazed by the level of support from our church. I was so grateful as I saw others with sick children crumble under the load they carried alone. You will never walk alone as a member of this church if you allow others in. It, as it became apparent our needs would continue for a long period of time, help was organized for us. Meals were prepared for us several days every week for more than a year. Cleaning crews came into my home every two weeks. The youth group came to do our yard work every week. Lifting the day-to-day -day cares was immensely helpful and allowed us to channel our energies into our children. Sometimes it was hard to let people to do all this, but I knew that one day I would be the one called upon to lend support. We must learn to give, but also to receive. People gave financially, and this helps to reduce mounting pressures. Then there were many kindnesses of people who on their own did things like plant flowers in my garden, sew pretty dresses for my girls, invite the children to events, sent cards, or came to visit me when I was far away. They sat with me and let me feel connected to church, and I felt so disconnected at times. One sister from time to time would send a van load full of expensive, convenient lunch items for the kids' school lunches to make this task easier and inject a little surprise into their day. It was also very helpful that people lowered their expectations of me after she died. They gave me space to recover, 
and heal and then integrate back into church life as I was able. What was not helpful? Truthfully, there, are very little, there was very little that was done for us that was not helpful in some way. If it wasn't the right thing, I tried to accept the kind intention of the heart. It is generally not helpful to say, if there's anything I can do, please call. Stressed people are not going to do that. Instead, think of a few practical and tangible things you can do to lift the burden in a committed way. If you truly don't know, start with a card in the mail in expressing your care that you would like to fill a specific need. Ask the ministering brothers if they know of something you could do. Follow up with a brief visit or a phone call. It's never the wrong thing to send a card of encouragement. Try to avoid providing a reason for the calamity. And here are some examples. God is using you to bring him glory. So he sent my innocent child a horrible disease. God is going to strengthen the church through this. I really don't want that burden uh, or this task. Could he find a better way? The truth is, none of us knows the mind of God or the why of it all. He just asks us to trust him. Strengthen those who suffer by praying for them. Chances are good they are too spiritually down to do it themselves. Finally, begin now to lay the groundwork for getting yourself through the hardest of times. Keep your relationships in repair with your spouse, your family, and your church family. Calamity can be sudden. So if you are struggling in your marriage now, get help. If you are acting like an island at church, recognize that it will be terribly difficult for others to reach out to you. Build trusting relationships at church and learn how to be at least a little bit vulnerable to others. Don't pretend life is good if you're burdened. You've got to let people into your life and learn to do it in the good times. Um, just a little bit of background first. Um, uh, Nicole and I were uh, married back in August of 2004, um, and uh, pretty much 14 months to the day, October 28, 2005, Nicole was diagnosed with um, a rare and aggressive form of cancer um, called desmoplastic small round cell tumor, um, DSRCT for short. Um, and at the time of, of her diagnosis, um, uh, the doctor pretty much told us that he felt she had about a 10% chance of surviving the next five years. Um, so obviously, I, you know, I was devastated. Um, uh, and if you know Nicole, uh, you almost wonder if she heard the doctor right because she was basically like, you know, okay, you know, what do we need to do? Let's get moving, you know, let's let's get this thing on the road. You don't know my God. And, uh, you know, 10% is is uh, more than enough for God to work with. So uh, she was ready to go. Uh, she wanted to start treatments and, and just get things moving. Um, but uh, about 16 months later, uh, two and a half years into our marriage, um, uh, Nicole passed away uh, back in February of 2007. Um, so initially, uh, initially my grief, um, I, I felt cheated, um, 
you know, every young married couple has plans and, and expectations of, of living a long and, and happy life together. And that was basically stripped from me. And uh, I just, I didn't understand why God would let this happen to me. You know, we loved each other. We were good people. We were involved in our church. And um, it was just, just hard to understand why God would let something like that happen to, you know, to her um, and to me. Um, so I guess you could say I was a little bit angry for a while. Um, I was I was angry that God didn't answer my prayers for her healing, at least not in the way that I had hoped for. Um, I felt like my prayers were were wasted breath. Honestly, 16 months of, of praying and and pleading with God, and and she still died. And uh, just couldn't understand that. You know, I, I really expected a miracle. Um, It also really bothered me at first um, that Nicole died the same way that my mom died just five years earlier. Um, uh, because of Nicole's weakened immune system at the time, she developed a, a pretty severe infection that her body just couldn't couldn't fight off. Um, things just kind of snowballed and got worse and worse until she was uh, basically placed on life support. and. Um, then at that point, um, you know, that some of the doctors, I, I met with them, and, and they basically felt that there was no realistic hope for her recovery, and um, that I had to make the decision uh, to either remove her from life support or, or keep her life going. And um, it just really broke my heart that I had to make that decision. I mean, how do you decide to take your wife off of life support? Especially since just five years earlier, we had to do the same thing for my mom. I couldn't understand why anybody would have to go through that twice, let alone just the first time. It was hard. Um, it was very painful in the beginning. Um, but, uh, but, you know, God was faithful. Um, he never left me, never let go of me. Um, and over time, I mean, he even answered some of the questions that, that I had. You know, everybody asks, you know, why, why me? Um, but I remember driving home from work one day, and uh, I decided to turn on the Christian radio station. And uh, the preacher had just started saying, just asking a question. Uh, he asked, you know, do you want to know why Christians get sick? Do you want to know why Christians have to suffer? And I'm like, yeah, I want to know why. Uh, and it was a simple answer, but it was really uh, profound to me, and it really impacted my life. And, and he said, Christians get sick so the world can see that there's a difference. And um, I was like, wow, you know, like it's such a simple answer. But, but at that point, you know, I, I realized that it wasn't all about me. It was about the hope that, that I have in Christ, the hope that Nicole had and about me showing that there is a difference to the rest of the world. And um, I think once, you know, once I got to that point, things 
just kind of, I began to see the bigger picture. I began to see God's plan and, and just started to accept Nicole's death, you know, as part of God's plan for my life. And um, I think that's when, when the real healing kind of began to take place in my life. Um, so now, you know, uh, a year and a half later, um, my grief is definitely different than it was from the beginning, um, as expected, obviously. Um, God has brought joy back into my life that it had been missing. Um, you know, he's, he's strengthened me, strengthened my faith, and um, he's, he's begun to restore my life. And uh, one of the promises that I came across um, in, uh, in God's word that I really hold tight to um, is First Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 10. And it says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. And um, he's, he's really just encouraged me um, through that, and I really hold on to that promise because I, I see it, I see it uh, being revealed and, and coming true in, in my life. Um, and so now the memories of Nicole, they're, they're really not painful anymore to recall. Um, you know, and, and she's left an amazing legacy uh, behind. And I've been able to see how God has used her illness and her death, you know, to, to touch many other lives. And um, I guess uh, to answer the, the next question, question number four, what adjustments and changes did you have to make initially? Um, one of the biggest adjustments I had to make was was coming home to an empty home. Um, before Nicole's death, I had never lived by myself before, so it was very lonely. Um, and just being surrounded by you know all of her things that were still there, I mean even just little things. You know, you'd open the the medicine cabinet and and her toothbrush was there that wasn't being used anymore. Um, you know, little things like that that, that were just really hard. Um, her clothes and and you know. Um, so I was very lonely, um, very lonely for a while. Um, another adjustment I had to make um, that was difficult for me was, was finding my identity again as a single person. I mean, I had spent two and a half years um, being married and, and um, you know, becoming identified as a married couple. And, and so going back to being single, it was it was difficult. I didn't really feel like I fit in with the singles, and and I didn't really fit in with the marrieds, and was just kind of it was just kind of awkward for me. Um, but um, so how does the loss affect or impact my life today? Um, it's had a huge impact on my life. Um, it's it's taught me a lot of things. Uh, it's taught me how to love and cherish somebody through you know sickness and in health. Um, it's taught me to live for today, not worry so much about tomorrow. Um, it's taught me humility and patience and uh, the power of prayer. It's taught me to find joy and sorrow and suffering and has caused my faith to grow. Um, it's strengthened me and given me the opportunity to encourage and strengthen others. Um, and it really has opened my eyes to the things that are truly important in this life and um, you know, not to sweat the small stuff. Um. I will have to stand for this. I kind of feel hidden behind here. <coughs> I'm Dan Hurtig, and I'm your fellow pilgrim on the way to the promised land. And uh, permit me 
to give my brief description of my experience with grief. And this is due to the loss of my dear wife, Norma, who died on January 28, 2007. And I want you to understand that I'm not an expert on how to deal with grief. And uh, this subject matter is, is really for the professionals. But I can tell you uh, that I'm acutely aware that uh, grief is a, a personal experience and that when you lose a loved one that really nobody else has the same experience like you have. And uh, to say to somebody else that is in a similar situation that, uh, uh, that I know uh, that what they're going through is, is probably inaccurate or an overstatement. Uh, it, I can just barely assume to know, but uh, this is not really the case. It was uh, 40 years ago and uh, 11 days, 40 years and 11 days earlier before her death when Norma and I met at the church youth group meeting and uh, Norma decided at that point uh, that she would be marrying me someday. She didn't tell me about that until many years later. <laughs> and <coughs> we did get married the same year. And uh, we made a firm commitment to each other that this was going to be a lasting commitment, a relationship that we took very seriously, that would endure for a lifetime, and it did. And it was like it is described in Matthew uh, 19, uh, verses 4 to 6, where uh, uh, they really become one flesh, where they cleave one to another, which we did. And we both agreed that this pledge, this pledge of allegiance that we made, this, it was more than a contract that we would be faithful to each other. And we did this without the benefit of actually having made a commitment with our Savior. Nevertheless, uh, we uh, were committed to each other and we did everything together uh, in our own way and knowing all the while that there was something missing in our lives. And we started a family, we raised children, we brought them to church, and many years later, and by the grace of God, I was convicted of my sins, and I was forgiven for being an unfit parent to my children and an unfit husband to my wife, and the burden that I had at the time was very great. And the urgency that to make this right for me was so intense that I could not wait any longer. And Norma could not understand that decision, that step that I made. And she needed more time. She just needed more time. A lifetime later. Norma was diagnosed with an incurable ovarian cancer. And 
that was a medical treatment and followed that lasted for three years. She had three major surgeries and the doctors gave up eventually on her and told her to go home and die. And this is when God the Creator that made time originally, he also made more time for Norma and he allowed her to come to her senses, to change her mind. While she was still in the hospital and God gave her a new heart and made her ready for his kingdom in the last minute. Norma's suffering came to an end rather quickly actually when I implore God and pray to him to take Dorma home. I didn't have to wait a long time. In fact, it was probably less than an hour and my prayer was answered. I got an immediate response. Even though I asked for it explicitly, I was not really ready for the aftermath. I was not prepared to deal with this separation. I did not realize that severing this tight bond that formed for a lifetime, how difficult this would be. This cleaving that is uh, described in Matthew 19. To undo this is a very painful surgery. And uh, that was done without anesthesia. And the initial shock and the sudden relief from this, from the duties of my caretaking, the nursing, and kind of numbed me originally and kind of masked the experience of my initial grief. And uh, I have to confess that I do not know why God chose this course of our lives, not what his detailed purpose was for this separation. Uh, God probably needed Norma in heaven more than he needed her here on earth. And probably because I depended so much on her, he was, he took her home so that I would learn to depend on him more. Out of his love, God created this opportunity for me to get to know him better and to trust in him only. God cut me loose, so to speak. He uh, set me adrift for a while so that I would value his nearness much more and seek only his guidance in all things. I never had a dog. I never had a cat. I didn't even have a goldfish as a childhood pet. So I, this was a, a very strange experience for me. And even though I lost my dad, that 
whom I hardly knew when I was nine years old. And all my grandparents that followed in time afterwards, I never had a really tight connection with them like I did with my wife, Norma. So it was especially difficult for me, and I did not realize until she was gone just how firm this connection was. When you have known somebody and lived with them for 40 years, while having to dispose of Norma's personal belongings, the process of letting go was made even more difficult by the many unrealized qualities of her life that I didn't realize the peculiarities and the quirks of her personality. They came back with the memories, and just to give you an example, she was a very frugal person and uh, very meticulous and saved everything, uh, even right down to the price tags of the clothes that she bought. She kept them like trophies, I guess. <laughs> and here they are, they're still there, no, not anymore today, but they were at the time. This, and in many more ways, the myriad many memories from the deep past, they kept on coming back, and they started washing ashore and into the presence of my day, and that kind of overwhelmed me from time to time. And being a rather emotional person, uh, it did not really take a whole lot, and even today, uh, like right now, it doesn't take much to kind of overwhelm my composure again. And occasionally, and in the beginning especially, it has caused me great sadness, and I felt uh, extremely distressed at losing control in this way. It is not a very comforting feeling. And uh, these episodes, uh, they tend to be kind of gut-wrenching and pop up suddenly and uncontrollably by the least or very innocuous type of circumstances, like Brother mentioned the toothbrush. You know? And uh, so the mundane and benign reminiscences here can bring up all kinds of emotions and do you lose your footing, your emotional footing frequently? And in the beginning, this pain of uh, separation was compounded and made uh, even worse. That I, I felt guilty about being sad. And I should have been happy, I should have been joyful for Norma found a glorious end after all. Yet here I was feeling really sorry for myself. I pitied myself and uh, this made me guilty for the circumstance I found myself in. And while I missed everything about Norma, her touch, her British accent, and the empty house and the solitude and the 
the elimination of the routine that I had established there for a while, taking care of her, everything ceased rather suddenly. The schedule was really upset deeply. And this was a devastating situation. And uh, it was crushing me emotionally uh, and ripped me off my moorings quite frequently. Now, by the grace of God, I have found rescue. Uh, God really changed my mind. And I have learned the difference between the pain of pitying myself and uh, just having a sorrow for the and hurting because of it. I can actually now already I can spare myself the anguish here. I I have learned that not to not to stay down into this canyon, look down into this hole of despair. I uh, don't have to subject myself to that. I don't have to go there anymore. And today I'm at liberty to miss Norma, uh, the memories that she left me with, and uh, even when they come to the surface, uh, this is all healing. And uh, God also has provided for me gracefully. He was merciful to me. And uh, he already planned for this in advance of Norma's departure. And while Norma was still alive, she designed the Lakeside Cottage, which uh, became a refuge for me and gave me something to do. It was an occupational therapy. This construction work helped me a lot to keep myself occupied since I'm already retired. And uh, it really promotes the, the healing of my grief. But I'm a little slow learner, you know, I'm still at it. it it's probably going to take a while. And uh, this educational process is a little bit difficult at times. So I have to refocus and uh, I have to let go and look at the eternal future here. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak to you here today, but this is part of it. This cure that is made possible by the embrace of the church, the family, which I have really become to appreciate very much. The, the church has involved me with their love, with their kindness, and uh, you, you all have taken me into your families, you have opened your hearts to me and you have allowed me to share my memories of Norma with you and you have been patient. You have opened your homes and your arms. You have comforted me. And I want you to know that I appreciate that very much and I thank you for it because this is really helpful to me to keep on going. Your compassion has 
put my life into a new perspective. And he gives me a, an improved appreciation for the fruit of the Spirit that I can see that is demonstrated in your lives. And I have to admit that not all difficult moments have passed. There are some spots to be soothed over at times for which I'm looking forward to your continued help to reconcile my grief for Norma's passing with the joy to become mine because of the glorious destination with the Lord. It continues to be a mind-altering experience for me, uh, learning every day anew of God's immense love and mercy that he has revealed to me in his plan. It is interesting to note that the recollections that I have of Norma, that uh, of how some of them have actually changed. Uh, I remember all the enjoyable moments and even the unlikely, unlikable events, I think, have taken on a, uh, an air of uh, a pleasant flavor. I, 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 it's, everything turned out okay. You know? And what appeared originally to be unbearable solitude has also been changed, uh, given me an opportunity more than I ever had before to study and reflect on God's word. And uh, peace and quiet have become occasions for me to marvel at how God is working in my life to prepare me to meet him and seeing him face to face in the promised land. And in concluding here, I wonder whether I'm the only one who never gave serious thought about parting with my loved one while we were still together. This never occurred to me. Yet we all have to come face to face with that. That's inevitable. In poor self-defense and without a real excuse, I can only say that I lack not only the wisdom but also the imagination of what was ahead for me. And in closing, I want to thank you for helping me to learn that losing is winning and to let, it, to let go is gain. To God be the glory. Indeed, to God be the glory. I want to thank on behalf of the audience, the panelists, for sharing from their hearts. Uh, that was certainly obvious to me, and I know it was to you too. Uh, because of the time we're going to dispense with some conclusions that we were drawing from this, I'd like to open it up for questions or comments from the audience for anybody who would like to address something to one of the panel members. This would be the time for it. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, since we do have a few minutes, I will then share some of those conclusions with you that we drew and wrap things up here. Some of our conclusions dealt with the initial grief was tangled with disbelief. Why did God let this happen to me? And for most of us, it was a mind-altering experience. We had never been through anything like this before. Feeling cheated, being angry at God uh, was another response. Uh, we questioned whether our prayers were heard. So many of them seemed unanswered. New challenges faced each one of us. The process of letting go was a difficult one, and then reorganizing life afterwards to carry on and to move forward. We were comforted ourselves and healed and found ourselves in a position where we could, in a unique way, be of some comfort to others in that situation. Mourning gets restored to joy. And as Dan indicated there at the end, there's a legacy to remember, and that tends to take on much more positive qualities than those last few days or even years that we have experienced. A good deal of support from the church, and I like the idea of the church being patient in letting people get back involved at their own speed, at a pace they can handle, and providing a good deal of support, spiritual support, emotional support, um, and, and so on. Uh, a very important thing. The opportunity for new activities and new purposes. I guess my computer's shutting down. <laughs> okay, and it's time, so that's it. Thank you all. <laughs>